about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. A man is hanging on a cross. Hours prior, he's been betrayed by his friends. A kangaroo court has convicted him, an innocent man. He's been stripped naked. He's been brutally beaten, whipped, tortured. He's been mocked. He's been shamed by leaders, by soldiers, by the religious. It's difficult to imagine a person more isolated, more in pain, more defeated than this man. Imagine you were there on the cross, having been beaten and despised and rejected. What words would you speak? What would you say? Would you wail at the injustice? Would you scream in agony because every part of your body was tortured in pain, your hands, your feet, your head, your back? Would you rage in anger against those who had abandoned you? This man, on this cross, says these words, words which echo down throughout history. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In many ways, those words echo what many of us feel when we are faced with misery, when we are faced with pain or we are faced with guilt. That sense of forsakenness, that sense of abandonment, that sense that something has been withdrawn from us. No doubt it's the kinds of words that some of the victims of those of the terrorist blasts in Turkey and Belgium have been uttering. If you're human, you will know these kinds of feelings this kind of cry, this sense of abandonment, this sense of forsakenness. One of the rich things about the Bible is the Bible recognises that about us. Uh, Throughout the Psalms, we hear of people crying out in these terms. Psalm 44, Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face Why do you forget misery and oppression? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus speaks these words, we know that he knows what it is to be human. To experience the depths of what humans feel. To experience the depths of what humans can do to each other. To cry from the depths of abandonment and forsakenness. And yet, 
there is far more to say about this cry of abandonment. Far more to say than that Jesus understands our suffering and pain. As important as that is, if we left that cry at that point, it would make Jesus impotent. It would be like a drowning woman trying to save another drowning woman. As noble as that is, having both faced the white-capped waves of death, you both drown. There's not much point if you can identify with someone else's pain, but actually do not much about it. Not actually save or rescue the people involved. Now, actually, what Jesus Christ means is that he offers something far richer and far deeper and far more hopeful than actually a lifetime of Good Fridays could explain. This morning, as we consider these words, let's just stop for a moment and consider three things. What does it mean for God to forsake? What is happening here on the cross as Jesus speaks these words? And what difference does that make anyway? Well, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, forsaken is not a word we would tend to use. It's a bit of an old word. But the sense of the word is abandonment, is the withdrawal of relationship, or the withdrawal of an intimate presence. And so the question is, in what sense does God forsake? In what sense does God forsake? In what sense is Jesus speaking about here? How could God forsake that which is beautifully and wonderfully made, that which he has breathed life into. The Bible presents us with many pictures of what that abandonment looks like. But I want to think one of the clearest pictures is in Romans chapter 1, where we read about the wrath of God and the punishment of God. Verse 18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave him thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, to know it all, to understand, to have it all together, they were in fact foolish. And as the passage unfolds, we hear these words spoken three times. Therefore, verse 24... God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 26. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they, ought, they do what they ought not to be done. The picture in Romans 1 is of God forsaking us in the sense that he gives us over to what we desire. He lets us be controlled by it. In fact, in some senses, he pushes us in that direction, particularly as we reflect on the Garden of Eden. You might remember there, this is exactly what takes place. 
God says to Adam and Eve, you are free to eat from any fruit of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat that, you will certainly die. The warning is clear. It's there. But what do Adam and Eve do? They partake of the fruit. And God hands them over. He forsakes them. He places them outside the garden where they will certainly die. Did they want the fruit? Yes. Did they want the knowledge of good and evil? Yes. Did they want the consequences? Perhaps no, but the consequences were clear. You will certainly die. (coughs) And so God hands them over to their desires, hands us over to our desires. As we suppress the truth by our wickedness and as we know God, but neither glorify him or give him thanks. God says, I will hand you over. I will forsake you. I will no longer be an intimate presence with you. I will draw my life from you. Is that what's happening when we hear these words that Jesus speaks? What is happening as we hear these words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has the one who said, I am the way, the truth and the life, suppressed the truth by his wickedness? Has the one who said, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had from the, which the world began, has he neither glorified or neither given God thanks? In that moment on the cross, did did Jesus lose his faith? Is his cry of one who's turning his back on God? What is actually happening here as he is forsaken? Well, let me draw your attention to two significant clues in the context of the passage we're looking at this morning. The first is to do with the air in which the words have been spoken. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Now, there's no particular scientific explanation as to why this took place. It just became dark, very dark. It's the middle of the afternoon. But those with a knowledge of their Old Testament would have recognised what is going on. The prophets of old had predicted a day of darkness A day in which the darkness would fall. Amos said, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and your singing into weeping. I will make you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that like a time of mourning for for an only son, like the end of a bitter day. As the darkness encloses Jesus on the cross, surrounds him. As he speaks these words into the darkness, we notice these metaphors of light and dark. We notice 
the withdrawal of light, the withdrawal of God's presence, the forsaking of God. And as the darkness descends, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, in some unfathomable way, is drawing his is withdrawing his intimate presence from Jesus. From one who is innocent, who's been in the intimate presence of God for all eternity. He is coming under the judgment of God. It's extraordinary. But that's not all that's happening here. There's another important clue as we look at these words. My, the statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, actually comes from Psalm 22 the psalm we heard read this morning. The words Jesus speaks are words that have a context. And frequently in the day that Jesus was around, because of their oral traditions, people would know, actually, when you start the psalm, they would know the rest of the psalm. They would know where the psalm was going. They would know what the psalm was trying to explain. Perhaps these words don't mean much to you, but... For the person listening on, for the person with eyes to see, they would know the rest of the psalm. And this is the psalm that is going through Jesus' head as he dies. And it's important to understand the full-orbed meaning of the psalm because it gives us further insight into these words of Jesus. The psalm falls into four parts. Just briefly, we'll have a look at them. In the first instance, though Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The next words in the psalm say this. Why are you far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. The expectation here, as the psalmist cries out, is that there is a God who saves. There is someone who is able to save. These words are not turning their back on God. They're reaching out to God. Why are you so far away from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. In verses 6 to 11, we see that the psalmist too is scorned. I am but a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Can you hear the words echoing here through the scenes of the crucifixion? And yet... The psalmist continues, You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust you even at my mother's breast. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. As Jesus is dying there on the cross, 
he calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he knows that God will save. He knows that God will reach out to him even in the midst of the insults, in the midst of the scorn, in the midst of the shame. This God will deliver him. In a bit more detail, in verses 12 to 21, we see the crucifixion actually described. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. This man believes in God. In the midst of his anguish, he trusts God. The psalmist knows that his prayers will be answered. Even in the midst of abandonment, even when God does not seem to be intimately present. He reaches out into that void and actually he knows he will be vindicated. Because the end of the psalm finishes like this. He has not despised or scorned the suffering or the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of praise in the great assembly before those who fear you. I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. The ends of the earth will remember and turn to you, Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down to you. For dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. The psalmist moves from this situation of forsakenness, knowing and trusting that there will be a day, will be a day, when that trust is vindicated. This is what Jesus is saying and thinking as he is nailed to the cross. Yes, he will be forsaken. God's punishment will fall upon him, but he will be vindicated. There will be singing in the courts. The nations will bow. He will be king. And so in many ways, this cry is a cry that's quite different to ours. It's a cry reminding us that Jesus places his trust in God. There's a continued confidence. It's not a questioning. It's not a dismissing of God. Yes, he identifies with our pain, but actually it's a cry of confidence. A cry with the knowledge that God will act in his mighty ways. Well, what difference does that make? We know Jesus was innocent. We know that he was being forsaken and rejected, not because of his own sinfulness. And yet, his forsakenness was real. We know that despite this forsakenness, despite the punishment of God falling on him, he had hope. 
And so what difference does that make? Well, I'll let the words of the scriptures speak to us this morning as they point us in the direction of what is actually taking place here on the cross. In Isaiah 53, we read these wonderful words. It was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but no, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us are like sheep and we have strayed. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. As Isaiah goes, this chapter in Isaiah continues. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause grief. Yet when his life is made an offering of sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that he has accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted as righteous, for he will bear their sins. These same words are reflected by Paul in 2 Corinthians when he says, For God made Christ who never sinned to be an offering for our sin." so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Remember those beautiful words from John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what this is about. That's what this forsakenness is about. It's God taking on himself in Jesus Christ the punishment for our sins so that we might be made right, we might be set free, we might not have to live our lives in guilt, we might be reconciled. You see, Jesus was in the presence of God and we were destined for God's absence, for his forsakenness. But Jesus endured God's forsakenness in order that we might enjoy his presence. And so, whatever life throws at us, we can know that nothing can take us from the presence of God who went so far to die for us in our place, to seek us out. What are the words you are left with? What are the words that you are going to speak now? What are the things you are going to think and do in light of this wonderful gift? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.